Hi, my name is Pasha Marlowe, and this is the Let Pleasure Be the Measure podcast. We are going to have so much fun together. I hope that our conversations about pleasure light you up. And I hope they inspire you to reclaim your desires and create more space in your day to bring pleasure into your work, your family life, and yes, even your sex life. We will practice and explore the art of pleasure together. Let's play. Hello, everybody. I'm Pasha Marlowe, and this is the Let Pleasure Be the Measure podcast. I'm excited to bring you today a new friend who I've met in the pandemic, like most of my friends right now who are virtual, who I hope to someday meet and hug on in person. Today, I bring you Rebecca Wiener, who has a master's in education. Rebecca is an educator, a parent coach, and an early development inclusion support specialist. I've been following Rebecca and I watch your Facebook lives and I enjoy your perspective and your wisdom and your compassion and your inclusion. I I admire your work and you as a person. So I'm so glad you're here. I'm so excited to be here and I feel the exact same way for you. Thank you. Thank you. So when, um, when people hear masters of education, um, just so we have everybody on the same page, does that mean you're in the classroom all the time? Are you a teacher? Are you a consultant? What does it look like? Great question. So a master's of education is the degree and the work that I do includes supporting families virtually in home, in school and in the community. I was a classroom educator for 10 plus years and I always had a child that needed a little bit more and a family that wanted to go a little bit deeper and the four walls of the classroom and the confines of the job didn't allow me to do that. Mm. So when there were enough gaps in services and I was courageous enough to step into them, I found some amazingly innovative ways to meet children and families exactly where they are and build customized supports that guide them on their unique journey. Nice. And so do families come to you uh, individually or do you work with them in groups? Right now I support individual families, classrooms, and schools. Often people find me through speech and language pathologists, occupational and physical therapists, counselors, or developmental pediatricians. And it is amazing to be able to offer customized support. There is a lot of big box cookie cutter things out there and families who already have too much on their plate cannot sift through the deluge to figure out what applies to them. They want to be seen and heard and understood for who they are and where they're at. And that's where I meet them. And then we identify the strengths they want to build on and the challenges they want to address, whether that is through support in the classroom or parent coaching or in-home developmental support. We work step-by-step each way along that journey to get them to their version of success. Beautiful. And I love that you said they want to be seen, heard, and known, because that's a theme that runs through my work as well. And it's a human need and desire. Absolutely. Being heard and known. And it's, it's rare. Certainly. um, I feel like in the, in the broader um, school arena or in the medical field, I just feel like often I'm walking into places like, needing to um, explain myself and be and be heard, but there's not necessarily a safe 
platform for that everywhere I go. So I love the- I hear you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I I work with a lot of heart-centered people and healers and light workers and people in the service industry. And so often when we go outside, it's very different in the world than what we've created here in our yes. workspace and our online space. Like everyone's really nice to me in the computer, but as soon as I go outside, the three-dimensional people are, are not so friendly all the time. So it's, it's rough and really helping people build both the competence and the confidence to show up in that 3D world as they are unapologetically. Other people can question their assumptions, but we don't have to apologize for our child who's having a meltdown in Target because you said you couldn't give him the cookie or the toy or the child that throws herself on the speed bump in the parking lot because she does not want to go in or out of school. There is no shame there. That is a human experience. We can work through it together. And what's interesting is I find that often when families are really overwhelmed in these shame spiking moments, when they feel ultimately disempowered, they ironically give their power to other people. So that person in Target who may or may not be having thoughts or feelings about the tantruming child, the person who never contributes to that child's 529 plan has never taken that child to the ER in the middle of the night and in no way supports the parents and raising them as dignified human beings, suddenly has a lot of power. Mm. And I am eager for families to reclaim that. What that person is thinking and feeling is none of our business. We are doing the best that we can. And so is our kid. We're going to get through this. And next time it's not going to be as bad. And eventually it's not going to happen anymore. But I will promise you, I will never be the person in Target that's staring. I will make the generous assumption that you're doing your best and you deserve that assumption. Yes. You are speaking my language and you're speaking to so many listeners out there who are just like, oh my gosh, somebody who understands overwhelm, who's going to help kind of bust through the, the shame cycles. And so, I, and do you think when you, when you say you give over your power to somebody in, in Target, who's looking at you funny because your kid is screaming, is that in the people pleasing sense or the apologetic um, tone that we take on with our eyes or our words then after? Is that the giving way of power you're talking about? I think so. It's in the gaze. It's in the apologies. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, we feel powerless. We yeah. feel overwhelmed and ashamed. And somehow addressing that with the stranger feels easier than addressing it with our child. Mm-hmm. And that is a cue to know, okay. I need some support here. And I doubt that that stranger who's glaring at me is the person who's going to provide it. So what other resources do I have available, including the, I don't give a, you know what, let's just get on with it. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, wow. We've all been there in in some way or another, whether it's ourselves crying in Target or or a child. Um, Yes. And so I love this, this theme of overwhelm and shame um, I think, I think that's a universal truth right now for everybody. Sadly, yes. Yeah. And so what are your favorite tools? Cause I assume whatever tools you use for parents and teachers are universally true for, for others too, but what are your favorite tools for overwhelm? Well, I'm a big fan of Brene Brown and she talks about FFTs, effing first times, yeah. the idea that we need to name it to normalize it. We need to own that we are having a common human experience to own our feelings about that because we do no favors to ourselves or others by denying or trying to repress them. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. We need to normalize it as part of the human experience. And then we need to reality check our expectations. Mm -hmm. So if I'm feeling really overwhelmed by the expectation that I'm going to throw the very best first in-person children's birthday party after the pandemic, and I've got the snow cone machine and the balloon artist and the masks with the child's face on it, and I am driving myself crazy. I have lost touch with the joy of being able to gather people who are important to celebrate literally surviving. So I'm right. going to reality check those expectations and remind myself that this is what's important. And that can take lots of forms. And if those balloons drift away or all the snow cones melt or whatever the juice or dye that we put on it ends up all over the kids' clothes, then say la vie. We lived to this moment and got to experience it together. Yes, yes. And surviving it. Here we are in a pandemic, which is uh, unfortunately taking the lives of so many people. On top of that, the, the loss that we already experience in, in our life in the natural sense and, and other tragedies. And so who, who said it wasn't enough to just survive and get through the day, you know, loving each other and just doing our best? Like, when was that expectation put on us that we have to be productive all the time? It's a lot. I am there for that. I actually just got a ring that says, I am enough. In our culture, rings are often a sign of commitment that other people make to us. And I wanted a commitment that I was making to myself. It is easy, locked away from the world without any forecast for our health, physically, mentally, emotionally, financially, to feel like we constantly have to be hustling. And one of my mentors, Denise Hamilton, talked in the early days of the pandemic about productivity porn. The idea that we're all going to alphabetize our spice racks and learn French and cook sourdough and have a side hustle and save the world. Coordinated behind you and everything. And we told ourselves that this is what we were going to do because that was our attempt to give order to the inherently disordered nature of the pandemic. And over the course of the last year, my definition of survival and thrive have totally shifted. And a lot of that is about redefining enough. I make to-do lists and to-done lists. To-done lists. To-done. I celebrate the things that I've accomplished. And I also make enough lists. It's enough that I took the first step in this 5,624-step process because it was the fear of starting that yes. was paralyzing, not the actual first step. It's enough that today that child only hit another child seven times instead of 12 that is movement in the right direction. Let's celebrate it. Oh my goodness. You come to this with such compassion and empathy. And in every sentence, I could go off in different tangents. So I have to backtrack for a second because you said you got the ring that says I am enough. And mm -hmm. I think I saw it on your middle finger. And I just want to know if that's intentional. <laughs> is, that, is that also like, I am enough. So F you people, I am not. Yeah, so the next time there's a meltdown in Target, you will be seeing this ring up close and personal. <laughs> so it was intentional. That's the ring finger that it fit on. But yes, I will go with that. We'll go with that. We'll go with that. <laughs> I choose that story. That works for me. <laughs> Parents right now would love to hear you are enough. What you are doing is enough. Teachers, I live with a teacher. As I mentioned, my husband's a third grade teacher. He's been an elementary school teacher for, I, I, I should know, at least 25 years. And so 
he's constantly coming home feeling like he's never doing enough, never doing enough mm-hmm. behind the scenes, never doing enough for each child, never doing enough to connect to the parents. I go on. And then I feel the same as an entrepreneur. And so yes, productivity porn, that's my feed. That's my Facebook and my Instagram feed. You are on the nose on that one. And so how do we knowingly witness ourselves? I witness myself watching productivity porn every day. And I witness myself going through overwhelm, witness my husband going through overwhelm. And I teach people to live in their pleasure and to pause and to relax and to be enough. And yet we still get so caught up in it. And so what is your tool for yourself or for others that you use to like, stop the train, like stop the world. I want to get off and reset. I hear you. And I think first and foremost, it starts with mindset Mm -hmm. with parents. I like to hold space for them and debunk the myth of modern parenthood. Our mm-hmm. culture teaches that in the time that it takes to gestate, adopt, or foster a child, we are magically going to become experts in everything from medicine to nutrition to exercise and art and gymnastics and education. And there are really talented, wholehearted people who graduated from medical school and law school and are expert artists and plumbers sitting in so much shame because they don't know how to do something that they've never done before. Mm -hmm. And so debunking that myth and Mm -hmm. saying, let's reality check those expectations. You've never parented a child who is three years, two months, 17 days and five hours. So this is a new experience for you. Let's Mm -hmm. walk it together for Mm -hmm. teachers. We have the myth that teachers are not people. Teachers sleep under their desk. They are constantly thinking about their students. That part is true. And right now, the boundaries between teacher and person are so blurry. Our teachers are full-time human beings, and in some cases, partners and parents, and have other jobs while they are trying to lead children and families and schools and I think the pandemic has really brought to the fore that we've never given people full grace. We've never accepted that I'm doing my best and my best today means we're turning on a movie or my best means we're getting through one seventeenth of what the curriculum says and no amount of shame or judgment or pushing is going to change that that is all I have to give. Yes. And if we learn anything from this experience, let us learn that our best is always changing, but it is never anything less than our best. Nice. So beautiful. I can imagine the relief, the sigh of relief that parents must feel when they go to see you with holding on to all that. And then you say something like you're doing your best and you are enough and and we don't hear it. And so, and I wonder if they believe it, like, does it take a while to convince them? That's a great question. I do think it's a process. And one of the first things I do with parents when I'm coaching is to walk them through a parenting with purpose guide. Our childhood shows up in our parenting. So tell me about how you were parented. There is power for co-parents in hearing each other say this. I have seen so many co-parents, oh, That's why you do that. And once we own our stories, then we identify our strengths. And it is powerful to see your co-parent say, I feel really strong in this. We may not believe that that is that person's strength, but hearing them identify it for themselves is so empowering. And then Mm -hmm. how do we build on those strengths to face those challenges? It's all about reframing the mindset, owning our stories, building on our strengths. 
it's really powerful. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's a beautiful lesson in a relationship to create space to talk about the other person's experiences and their stories and the lens they come into the relationship with um, rather than making assumptions and jumping into their head and trying to uh, figure it out. I, I love the idea of starting a lot of conversations in my marriage with the story I'm telling myself is yes. because I'm coming into this argument with with this in my head. And so yep. what I'm telling myself is that you're thinking this and I'm always wrong. Always don't tell him that I'm always wrong <laughs> about the story I tell myself. And so is he. So I imagine we're all walking around with assumptions and misperceptions that aren't based in truth. Yes. In fact, I recently did a school observation. The school was looking for somebody to observe and reflect and make recommendations on how they could guide the family in supporting their children. And as part of that, I did an observation in the classroom and I collaborated with teachers. And some of the language I heard was that the children are manipulative or they get pleasure taking from others. And I realized the story in that teacher's head is that this is a conscious choice on the child's part. And when we reframe that as, are they manipulative? Or could it be that they've learned through experience what support and accountability is available and therefore what they can do? Do they derive joy taking from other people? Or could it be they do not yet have the social and language skills to engage in play? So they will steal the ball, run in circles and laugh. And that looks like joy. And helping teachers reflect and reframe everything they did in their classroom made perfect sense based on the story in their mind. And in order for us to shift the practice, we have to examine the story. Yes. And, and we have to create space and time to honor those stories or to listen to them. And I'm, I know teachers are often feeling so overwhelmed to work through the, the basics of the curriculum that, that holding that space is challenging. And yet what you're saying sounds like it would make so much sense. It's like it started there. Let's mm-hmm. let's understand the child's perspective and their stories first um, so that we can continue from there. And I, it's so, it's, it's a beautiful image to imagine all the children coming in to the new school year, being able to tell their stories. And yeah. I, I hope, I know my husband really enjoys, um, do you know the work of uh, the multiple intelligences? Yes. Yeah. Gardner, right? Howard Gardner. Yes. Yeah. Um, He utilizes that a lot. So he's able to come to the classroom with a lot more empathy and patience and and compassion that, that a child might learn. I can't remember them all. It's kinesthetic or emotional intelligence. Um, There's visual, spatial, linguistic. We tend to measure intelligence in terms of cognition. How much do they know? But Howard Gardner and Sternberg and others actually redefined intelligence as the ability to use what you know to solve meaningful problems. And if quantum physics is not meaningful to you or your life, then knowing how to do it is not that functional. But little children, they like puzzles. So cultivating that spatial intelligence and giving them the opportunity to practice that, or some of them learn kinesthetically, great, let's break out the slime and the water beads and the rice. And some people will say, oh, that's just play. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, check yourself, take out the just, there is no just, there is play. This is how children learn. It's not on a worksheet, it's in the real world. And we have to hold space for that. Yes. And when you're playing all the 
um, metaphors uh, about the rest of our life, you know, come through. And it's such a wonderful learning opportunity. And um, I probably mentioned this before on the podcast that the, the idea of the opposite of perfection is play and perfectionism with all of the shame and expectations wrapped up in it, that play is one of the many tools um, to, to really address that. Um, and it's hard. It's hard because it feels yes. so vulnerable or- yes too leisurely, too fun. Like, I don't have time to have fun. I don't have time to think outside of the box and play a game. I need to be productive. But then I, I teach if there's, if you don't, you can't have an aha without a mm -hmm. ha ha, right? So there's this- I idea, love that. Right? Like I can remember it because it rhymes. Um, but you're more engaged if you are laughing or playing and then anything else you're learning at least for somebody like me in my learning style i will remember i uh memorizing silly things for a test i had to roller skate around my parents Ooh. car and with each circle i'd memorize a new whatever and the, and it worked for me i had to be in my body um i was a terrible student math science. I just never could wrap my head around it. And so interesting that later in life, I'm realizing that what I needed to do was move my body, mm -hmm. be a little more emotionally engaged and be allowed to play and laugh more and not feel so um, unsafe in my own body uh, to be able to express myself fully. Yeah. Yes. And I think for many parents, as adults, we are goal-driven, task-oriented. We have our to-do list, and we want to check things off. And when it comes to raising little humans, we like our colors and our shapes and our letters and our numbers because we can check them off. And we lose sight of our curiosity and our creativity mm -hmm. and our communication and our collaboration. And play is the birthplace of all of that. When parents say, I do everything for my children. I work this job so I can provide for them. I do the cooking. I do the cleaning. We're so busy doing for our children that often we don't have energy left to be with our children. And yeah. little children don't understand the concept of salaries and pensions and credit cards, nor do they need to. They need to know that they're loved. And I love helping parents see how play is not just what you do, but it's a frame of mind. You're already doing so much of it. And you can include this in the things that you're doing. We can playfully set the table. We can playfully do laundry. We can make up a story while we're cooking a recipe. It's an investment in our relationship, not just the outcome of the task, but who we become in the process. Yes. I so appreciate that you said you sneak it in to what you're already doing. So you're not even taking up more time. You're making those tiny habits that you already are doing more fun. And so when you mention um, like storytelling with a recipe or having fun setting the table, I can see that working in my head. And this might be a limiting belief up until around age 11. And then all of a sudden, you know, the eye rolls come in and the mom, that's so dorky. Um, so we, we did those things. And then we started realizing as, you know, the preteen and teen years um, showed their lovely head. We started playing card games or chess, like during dinner, while we're eating mm -hmm. games, that's our game time. And, um, and we bring, we'll bring cards to a restaurant almost all yeah. the time. Go. Um, and it used to be, we bring big board games um, because it was just so much fun. And you're, 
and you're in these moments where you're yeah. obviously already sitting together in close proximity and often you're waiting at a restaurant there. And now when you look around at a restaurant, people are waiting for their food and across the board, families are together and all on their individual devices, looking down at, in the one opportunity, other than maybe the car where you're that close to each other all the time. And so it's such a precious moment. Um, and I also know that there's people listening to this being like, oh my goodness, give it a rest. Because when I'm at a restaurant, it's my time to just chill out and not try to do anything, just be. And if I want to be on my screen, because that helps me relax and it's my night off, then let it be. And it's so true. It's so true. I'm so glad you said that. First and foremost, I never go anywhere without a toy book or game. You never know when the opportunity will present itself or you can create it. But I love what you just said. I think that there's a lot of assumptions and judgment, particularly surrounding technology. And I have found that telling parents what to do or not do without understanding why they're currently doing what they are doing is not very helpful. So parents are often shamed. They're cited the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendations, or you could be doing this. But if the function of their giving their child a tablet is so that the child can touch, look at, and place demands on something other than mom or dad, then what parents hear is, when I take care of myself, I'm hurting my child. And that will never benefit the child. So when we look at the underlying reason behind why they're doing that, Sure, we may be sitting at a table about to eat a meal, but this is the first five minutes when I can check in on that really important work email and a decision needs to be made before we finish eating. So I'm clearing time later to eat with my kids by checking this email now. And those of us glancing from another table don't have all that context. So I'm all about being curious. Exactly. Get curious before you get accusatory. I love that. Get curious before you get accusatory. Oh, I'm going to try to remember that one. We might have to name the whole podcast that. Um, yeah, well, it, that's a great experience. In the early years of my teaching in Los Angeles, I had a little boy who would come to our early intervention center and tell me every day, Miss Becca, I want to write it all night long. And my first thought was that he was using some really sexually explicit language and that that was inappropriate. And then I decided to get curious and I observed that he loved car tracks and race tracks and zipping and zooming. And so I watched the movie Cars thinking if I learned something about something that's important to him, I can really invest in the relationship. And the Rascal Flatts song says, life is a highway, I wanna ride it all night long. I was shutting down this child telling me something that's really important to him. Granted, he was doing so out of context, but if I had said, you're not allowed to say that, that is totally inappropriate. I could have trespassed on so many boundaries and shut down such a bond. And that experience, Pasha taught me, get curious before you get accusatory. I am so glad I did not speak to his foster parents. Here would be this educated, young, white, privileged person talking to people of different demographics about how they should be parenting all of the wrong decisions. I am so glad I got curious. Mm. That's a beautiful, memorable story to to allow us all to understand that. Um, yeah, context <laughs> means is, it's everything. It's everything. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, my son used to watch um, Top Gear. Top Top Gear. It's a, it's 
two British men crashing mm. cars is how I saw it. I watched, I said, that's crude humor and they're smashing cars. They're being crude and violent and sexist. And like, why do you bother? And, um, and then he would say, I'm not actually listening to anything they're saying. I'm actually like watching the wheels of the cars. And I'm just noticing how all the wheels of the cars are different. And I'm like, really? Oh. Like that's what you're like. Um, and then I look down, and of course he's drawing car wheels and tires. And this is when he was 13 or 14, and um, and he was able to watch the show and and leave all of the context aside and simply just look at the wheels. But as a parent, I walked in and heard all the subliminal sexist messages that were being told. Um, and he went on to draw for over 10,000 hours wheels and then wheels and then wheels, and then he started drawing cars. And he went on to design cars and. Yeah. And so he's a car designer now for Ford. I think back to that moment of me walking in the room and saying, why are you watching that show? And, and had I not stood there for that extra 30 seconds for him to say, I'm not listening to the crude humor. I'm just looking at the tires with wheels. I wouldn't have been so accepting of it. And he wouldn't, that was his pleasure. That was Mm -hmm. his jam for his entire career and so yeah it really it's so important so important to, to take them so right take them are so right I'm yeah. so glad you had that experience and look at what he has become that's amazing yeah I should I should do a podcast episode alone on on his uh story because talk about how teachers didn't understand him he was awarded the most likely to walk down the wrong alley like who gives that award anyhow in, in middle school, the most likely to walk down the wrong alley, the most likely to forget his backpack, like all, cause he is on the Asperger's, you know, inspection. Who he, gives these awards? Exactly. Like silly. And so he'd come home and he'd say, and he would laugh about it, but I knew it was actually hurting him. And he didn't have a whole lot of friends in school. And we were worried. We were worried he wouldn't go off to college because he, oh, and then they put him in a friendship club. This is another terrible decision. They took all the kids who were bullied, who didn't have any friends. And then they created a friendship club, which met during recess so that the kids couldn't and didn't want to, but still couldn't go out to recess. So they met in the cafeteria um, and they all hated it. And uh, so he grew up with the thinking that he didn't belong, that he wouldn't have friends, that he would actually walked down the wrong alley. So the irony is he went on to draw all these cars. Um, he won this contest for best um, or upcoming car designer. Ford sent him to college on scholarship. And now he's working for Ford as a car designer, living in Detroit where <laughs> he actually could walk down the wrong alley. <laughs> so we had to talk about that. But um, but yeah, he that he didn't listen to them and believe but that they didn't listen to him and believe them. And that yes. we focused, and we focused on the gifts and the strengths of his uh, creative mind and played and played cars. Oh that my is gosh. so brilliant. Hundreds so of hours. Brilliant. And, and as parents, sometimes it's exhausting to get on the floor and sit down yes, it is. and play Legos or whatever, or to like make voices. If the kid's like, mommy, you pretend to be, this person, oh my God, it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. So I love that you say, let's 
sneak it in, bring that pleasure and play into, um, to what you're already doing and yes. make it fun for yourself too. Yes. Right? If you're a writer, do something through writing. If you like plants, bring, I don't know, horticulture into your play, <laughs> but you have to honor your own self and your own yes. pleasure and play as well. Rock on Shaka Khan. Tangent during your beautiful, well-spoken <laughs> presentation. I love what you shared. That is so amazing. Thank you for seeing and honoring your son's truth and helping him become all he could be. And to all those who gave out ridiculous awards, I say, how do you like them apples? I love that. Yes, yes. I have thought to contact that teacher. I wish you lived in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're, you're so good for the soul. You're so good. Thank for, you. Yeah. For the part of us, all of us that struggles with self-worth, self-doubt, self-shame. And, uh, and you're, and it just seems so natural for you to come out and you say like the perfect thing that eases my nerves right away. So I imagine you do this for parents and teachers and children all the time. It's such a gift you have. Well, thank you. I will share. It is a journey and it is not my natural instinct. I definitely came from, you know, that's not a terrible idea, otherwise known as a good idea. Or I don't know if maybe the printer is broken. There are so many qualifiers that there is zero vulnerability or accountability. And it really took me the first three decades of my life to figure out what people were saying and then realize I got to speak my own truth. And parents need to hear their own truth. Children need to have their truth acknowledged and validated. That's how we build on strengths, not by trying to fit people into boxes or swim through the red tape or try to make sense of things that people don't have the courage to just speak. Absolutely. And is, do you have a favorite book on this subject or topic that you like to recommend? Mm. So many good books. I do have a bookshop.org book nook with cool. books and different topics. I always recommend Brene Brown as somebody who can anchor us in our own worthiness. Um, Dr. Stuart Brown wrote a great book on play and how it's a biological imperative and it is part of our evolution. Um, Dan Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson wrote The Whole-Brained Child. And it was actually Sir Ken Robinson who used to say that we educate our children first from the waist up, then from the neck up and to the left. We isolate parts that we think we're supposed to cultivate and we cut out the rest of the child. And the idea that we could look at our whole selves, our whole brains and how we work, not in isolation, but like you were saying, the multiple intelligences, when we can meet somebody for who they are and nurture their whole self, that person and we collectively are going to go so much further. Hmm. Beautiful. And those are wonderful resources. I, I believe I've read all those really good for parents. Um, and I know it would be tricky to name a book for every age group. The Elmer and Fish in a Tree are coming to mind that would have maybe these themes. But but do you have like a children's book that you're like, this one is so good. Like all children should read this mm. book. I was recently reading Lori Berkner's The Story of My Feelings. It's both a book and a song. And it names feelings. It talks about what we might do when we're feeling that way and what we can do afterward. So I'm working with a little girl who's having a lot of difficulty with transitions, specifically when Miss Rebecca leaves. 
So we've created what's called a social story. When Miss Rebecca leaves, I may feel sad. If I'm feeling sad, I can cry or ask for a hug. When I am calm, then I can dance or play with Legos. And this script helps guide her through the experience of her feelings that feel so overwhelming and dysregulating that she can't access all of the skills that she has to calm herself down. So this gives her a visual, it gives her a song, it guides her through. So that's one of my favorites, but I would break open my whole bookshelf and show you all the great things. There's so much that can be learned from every story. Story time with Rebecca. Okay. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I would I would attend that for sure. I love it. So behind you, Rebecca, are these very colorful posters. I cannot ignore this. These are your vision boards. And I must know yes. somebody so you know evolved in their mind after all of this work, inner work, and then service work. What is on your vision board? Well, I'm so glad you asked. I was recently telling somebody, you know, I'm more of an intellectual. I'm not very creative. And she's like, Rebecca, what's behind you? Oh, my creative vision boards. Right. So one is my philosophy of education, which is play-based, family-centered, literacy-inclusive of all definitions of self. Another is a vision board for healing after trauma. One is a let's eat coming through disordered eating. Another is, this was really ironic. I just cut out pictures that resonated and I arranged them. And I realized that it was a woman with a strong heart and a strong mind who was looking at a basket of eggs. And I thought, hmm, this is me in the waning years of my fertility, contemplating what comes next. And of course, watching over that is Maya Angelou. So she'll be my angel. <laughs> Nice. And then I'm not sure if you can see on the side is a piece of art that one of my former students made. Her mother is this brilliant artist and draws people. And then she likes to use her fine motor skills and cut out pictures of flowers and make frames around the people. So I love to have her vision next to my vision. That's beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. So you come at this work also um, from the perspective with being trauma-informed and eating disorder-informed, it's such a beautiful um, beautiful gift that you are to, to people that you all have all these sensitivities and, and so much um, empathy and perspective. It, it is about empathy. So often I find that families and teachers and especially children are afraid of being judged for their experience to the point that they won't own it. And I will feel with families. I have experienced chronic illness. I have experienced anxiety and depression and eating disorder, overwhelm and burnout. And that's what brought me to my mission today, which is to meet people where they are and help guide them to where they wanna go by owning their whole selves and being compassionate. So there is room for all of that. There is no reason to hide or justify. You show up as you and I will meet you with open arms. Mm. So good. So good. I have never felt so calm and healed after <laughs> a podcast episode before. I'm, I'm, I'm like, so glad. like, now you talk and I'll sit and I'll just listen to you. Yes. Um, it's, it just resonates with my soul as to what we, um, 
I'll just speak for myself, like what I need to hear as a human being right now living through this time. And none of those encyclopedias of pediatrics that we speak of or reference have ever been written during a pandemic in 2021. So we don't exactly. have to, to those rules. <laughs> exactly. And I think we're at a really interesting stage here. Somebody told me recently, this is actually the loneliest part of the pandemic. And I found that curious. We were plunged into lockdown more or less together. We were in shock and we were scared, but we were having those of us privileged enough to stay home, somewhat of a common experience. But now with inequitable access to vaccines and different definitions of social distancing and safety, we're all coming out of this differently. Mm -hmm. And I think that there needs to be a collective reckoning with the mental health toll that this has taken. And my concern is that after trauma, we often rush to get back to normal. We want to go back to what was that, by the way, didn't prevent the trauma. And that's our sense of accomplishment. Instead of growing forward, acknowledging how we're feeling, setting realistic expectations, I really think that we're going to see some upcoming challenges that have frankly always been there. And this just highlighted it. And my wish for the world is hold space and give grace this is going to be a messy reopening and re-entry and we have to be okay with that. Just like we found a way to, for those of us that survived, be okay with what's happening and make it to the next day. We're going to have to redefine okay over and over and over again. Sure. Renee Brown talks about that day, day two and mm -hmm. the messy middle. And I feel like that is going to be a very long day and a very yes. messy middle that we're going to be in <laughs> for quite for quite some time. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yes. You are a miracle and magic. Thank you. You are too. <laughs> Thank you. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. And it's interesting because unlike other episodes, we didn't specifically say pleasure, like how to bring pleasure. What is our pleasure? What is pleasure? But I know, and you know, we've been talking around it the whole time through yeah. play, through self-worth, through asking for help, through grace. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I, I love that it's expansive in that way, the idea. Yes, yes. It's all about openness to joy and recognition of our own worthiness. Yes, yes. All right, so I'm going to um, make an appointment to talk with you every day. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be there. <laughs> Oh my goodness. How can people reach you, Rebecca, if they want to follow you or uh, ask you for help? Yes, I would love to connect. I can be reached on my website at learnplaygrowconsulting.com. On Facebook, I'm Learn Play Grow with Rebecca A. Wiener, MED. Interesting story. There is another Rebecca Wiener who works in early education. We met at a conference and took pictures together with each other's card. And my promise to her was that I would use my middle initial to distinguish myself. So for some people, it sounds pretentious, but it's Rebecca A. Wiener, M-E-D. And on Instagram, it's at Learn, Play, Grow Consulting. I would love to hear from people and to hold space for you. I have a feeling you're going to hear from a lot of people after this one. Yes. I'm here for it. Thank you so much for being here, Rebecca. Such you a, are so welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. And thank you for the space that you are holding and the grace that you are giving. You are helping people step into their fullest and best selves. And that is holy work. Thank you. I 
I will accept that and absorb that and um, take that in. Thank you so much. You deserve it. <laughs> Thank you. For anyone out there who's listening, who enjoy this podcast, please consider subscribing to the podcast so that you get notifications of all the very fascinating conversations and guests that I keep bringing on. And if you want to continue the conversation with me, feel free to reach out to me, Pasha at PashaMarlo.com, or you can find me all over Facebook and Instagram at Pasha Marlo. So I look forward to talking with you all and seeing you at the next episode. And thank you again, Rebecca, for joining us today. Thank you so much. Welcome.